Thank you for choosing to listen to Why I Stay. After this episode, be sure to check out our latest podcast series, Answers, a show where Pathios tackles common questions about the world's different religions, such as what makes something kosher, why is there a hell, and what are the names of God? You can find our entire catalog of podcasts, including Answers, at pathios.com or on your favorite podcast app. And now, without further ado, here's why I stay. I'd seen college kids come out and then get walloped on immediately by their Christian friends. You know, like, we're here to save you. You know, you can't be gay. You, you just haven't met the Lord yet. I saw those things. And I did not like what I saw. This is Why I Stay, a show about faithfulness in the face of judgment, confusion, and fear. Jennifer Knapp is a singer-songwriter who first found fame in 1998 with her album, Kansas. After two more albums that had found success in the contemporary Christian music scene, she took a step back in 2004 to recover from her years of constant touring and musical commitments. In 2010, she revealed that she was in a lesbian relationship and began to speak out more about her Christianity and sexuality. The harsh response to her revelation was not surprising, but it did force her to try and understand why the people who had loved her so much were saying such hateful things. Even though many Christians cast Jennifer Knapp out, she still is a Christian, and she even recently earned a master's degree in theological studies. I sat down with her because I wanted to know why her faith was so important to her after all the turmoil that she had gone through for the last decade. Interesting story for you. You are unlike a lot of people who grew up listening to your music. I always assumed you grew up in a Christian religious home. What was your childhood like through the lens of religion? What were your experiences with it? What did you know about it? All, especially in Southeast Kansas, which is like Bible Belt big time. Yeah, you know, I, I whenever I kind of get into this zone, I have a bone to pick with what's on Wikipedia because it's such a great place to start because there's a quote on Wikipedia that says that I was raised irreligiously, which mm-hmm. to me just smacks of evangelicalism because my parents weren't going to, you know, church every Sunday and Wednesday and praying over every meal. But I think that does a disservice is particularly from, you know, where in the context of where I came from. I mean, Southeast Kansas. I mean, you were an outlier if you said you were an atheist. In that terms, like everyone kind of culturally believed in God. I wasn't unfamiliar with church. My grandmother went to church every Sunday, was part of her faith community there, but she wasn't an evangelical, you know, Mm -hmm. like from the context of, I think, what most of your audience would find familiar. I mean, she was she prayed. She was no, she was like a normal Christian is probably what I would have called her. And my grandfather was a deacon at the church, even though he didn't go all the time and he wasn't frowned upon, you know, but there was still a, a sense of, you know, a respect of something greater than ourselves, I think embedded within my family. And there was also the sense of shame under like the divine head. So, you know, for my mom's side of the family, because my parents were divorced early on in my life. And there was kind of this rift between my maternal and paternal sides. It was kind of like the Hatfields and McCoys. And with my mother's side of the family, like I often, that that was one of the few places because they drank and they smoke and they cussed and they were just normal working class kind of folks, really. 
But compared to like, say, my grandparents on my father's side who never said a swear word in the whole lives, didn't have any obvious vices, you know, things like that. They looked like teetotalers compared to the other side of my family. And so I just remember kind of growing up and going, oh, well, you know, that's why I'm going to go to hell. Like it would be this kind of tongue in cheek thing. But that's all to say is that, you know, I, I grew up with this conception of God and of faith and I was familiar with Christianity. I, you know, I certainly wasn't familiar with Judaism or Islam or, right. you know, Hinduism or anything like that. This is the faith tradition that whether or not we participate in it, I would say most Americans still kind of grow up culturally affected by Christianity. By the time I, you know, was, I was like 18, I think I was in college and I, I kind of came to that crossroads for myself about making a decision about how I would participate with faith. Mm -hmm. And a lot of my friends around me were Christians, were very active inside of their faith communities, very much part of the evangelical, you know, wave like I, I, I consider myself probably on the arc or in the beginning of, or kind of maybe a little bit into the journey of when youth and evangelicalism kind of took off in the 90s, I was a product of that. So yeah, I'm, I, I mean, it's easy to say that I w wasn't raised up in the church, but I wasn't raised up in that evangelical thing. I, I got involved in that relatively late. For most people in their experience, I didn't inherit it, I chose it. And that's kind of a decision that I've had to kind of deal with throughout, you know, like the consequences that I've had to deal with for the most of my faith life. And I think there's, a, you know, the record Kansas, which came out in 98, was only about a couple years after I started, I guess, in the parlance of, you know, evangelicals, a couple years after I got saved. So mm -hmm. that record was a process of me kind of riding out this culture clash, this this weirdness of, you know, having now going to church on a regular basis and inquiring about this faith journey and genuinely wanting to be there. And at the same time, being a part of a culture that would go, oh, you weren't raised in the church. I'm like, well, wait a second. You're disparaging like the people where I came from. Like, yeah. you're not just talking about me. You're talking about where I came from, my parents, my family, all of these other things. And that was just like one of the things. So I think early on, I started to experience the culture shock and was trying to process that. I don't think it's ever really left what I do or the conversations that I have in public about faith. Uh, so when you got to school and you, you become this evangelical, how was your family with that? Like, oh no, she's gone off the deep end. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> um, I mean, I've had an incredibly tough, let me just say that through the years, I have an incredibly kind and gracious family, like all the way around, like of all the kind of wild, wacky things that I've done in my life, they've pretty much rolled with the punches and loved me throughout that, which mm -hmm. I think is extraordinary considering, you know, the experiences that a lot of people have. But yeah, when I say that too, I think about, you know, not only did they kind of handle my religion in stride, I think in some really cool ways, they kept my fervency in a realistic check. And what I mean by that is, you know, I, I had a ton of friends that were seriously pressuring me then to evangelize to my own family, right? Well, mm -hmm. now that you're saved, you need to save your mom and your dad and your grandma and your grandpa. And I'm like, wait a second, you're telling me these guys are pieces of crap and that right. there's something wrong with their lives, you know, and that there's something corrupt about who they were. And I, I think what was so fantastic, strangely, about that experience is that it gave me another, you know, 
it gave me an opportunity to see this playing out the same way that it played out with myself, right? To have another experience that was similar to my own to look upon and see what that was like. And I, I, I don't know if that makes sense, mm-hmm. but to have a stranger who didn't know my parents to be able to make this kind of statement about their inherent corruptness was offensive to me to watch that play out. And I think in turn, I, by seeing that outside, I could understand some of my own discomfort, mm-hmm. which I wouldn't understand maybe till a decade later, like theologically, the right. discomfort with the discrediting of my inherent goodness, mm-hmm. of my own individual self-worth and value, and how paradoxical that seemed because strangely, I came to faith and really was attracted to that, I think in particular, very early on, because when I didn't see the value of myself, some that were out there in in the good parts of the evangelical experience I was having, an understanding of my value and my worth that was worth, for lack of a better way to say it, was worth saving. I just didn't see the value of that for myself. And in what I'd heard of, you know, if there was good news, the good news was that I'm redeemable. I'm good. And like the part of the faith journey for me was seeing my person through God's eyes Mm -hmm. and, you know, to not have that be so entirely narcissistic, but to see the world through God's eyes, to see other people through God's eyes. And some of those ways that we have those and some of the ways that kind of our, our religion sometimes gets in the way of this imperative to conform people to practice the religion. And if people don't conform to that, then there must be something inherently corrupt about them. And so I don't know, it was just, it was interesting to me to kind of go through that process and strangely be attracted to hope and the created goodness and the mystery and wonder and joy about life and living that I was definitely looking forward to. And the idea that the strange discomfort that I had with this idea that the only thing that could make life joyful was religion. And that seemed a little bit off kilter for me, knowing that I knew people that I deeply admired and deeply respected and something a little bit off with just writing them off because they didn't speak a faith language. listening to undo me this week and then i went down the rabbit hole of all the songs and i was struck by exactly what you're talking about how much shame there was in a lot of it of the sense of like i'm dirty and i'm unclean and i need you to come get me and save me yeah whereas you know and i was i identified with that when i was you know 18 19 20 sure i had that same idea of like man i'm just i'm i'm a piece of crap and i need you to, to just polish me a little bit and make me a diamond, you know, like (laughs) that idea. Whereas now I would define it as God looks at me and, and loves me and values me. And because of that, he wants me to become the best version of me that I can be. It's subtle, but I think it's a significant difference in the way I view God's relationship to me. And I was wondering in your songs from back then, was that an accurate view? Is that an accurate interpretation when you look back 20 years and you think about how you thought about God's relationship to you? Were you feeling that kind of 
shame might be too strong of a word, but that's the closest thing I can think of for it. Every ounce of me wants to give a different answer than the truth, which is, yeah, <laughs> I, I think that's a pretty accurate assessment of where I was at. I mean, I, mm-hmm. I think the cringe evangelicalism of, you know, you need to get saved. I definitely viewed myself as somebody who needed intervention and to pull me out because I, I really didn't in any way have any kind of stronghold on my own worth and my own value at that point. So I, that was very appealing to me about uh, about Christianity in particular. So I, I think that that was a motif definitely that particularly with a record like Kansas that I dove into. But I think also at the same time, like I recognize in that very quickly that, you know, we, for any time that as an individuals, we fight for something, we usually tend to fight for the things that we care about. Right. Um, and I think for me, there was this definite instinctual want to survive and want to believe that I had value and worth. And I don't think that I, I suspect that that's not alien to most human beings. I think right. somewhere in the core of who we are, what we're generally trying to do is, I'll speak for myself in this. I, I think sometimes I'm trying to live up to the imagination of who I imagine I am. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like I'm trying to, you know, most of us tend to tell the story about ourselves in the best possible light. And we want to be that, you know. I don't know that I genuinely hated myself during that time, but I I understood something about my own behavior and actions and where I was and what I would do and kind of wishing that I was doing stuff with a little bit more respect of my own person and Mm -hmm. more respect of other people and with an appreciation of how precious our lives are and how fragile we are. And I I think I understood a little bit of that was trying to get to a space and to find a language to be able to articulate that in in some of the ways that I think our faith traditions have, you know, paved the way for that, but also in the ways that religion gets in the way of that endeavor, because it, it tends to kind of be very simple. Well, you know, like kind of the original sin argument, you were born corrupt that, you know, that's why we need God. And you know, as I, I think not long into my my faith experience, I was just kind of going, that's, I don't know if I buy that, but why didn't I buy that? And I mm-hmm. think that's been kind of the long story of my writing and my thinking theologically about this stuff is like, why, why is that such a corrosive idea that I start mm-hmm. corrupt? Why am I so offended by that? Because I'm offended when I think that way about myself. I'm hopeless when divinity thinks that of me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, if anything that I, you know, one of the, the titles of the podcast, you know, why I stay, I think the thread that I continue to pull on is this genuine hope I have that divinity sees the merit in us, in the right. creation of just these good and wonderful things. And that to me is extraordinary for me to continue to kind of look for the joy in that, the goodness in those kinds of things, and to participate with humanity and with creation and all the things of our lives to not start from its place going, no, you prove to me <laughs> why I should value you instead mm-hmm. of the other way around where it's like, I need to work on the things about me and my person and my view of the world that help me see what exists of value that's right in front of me that I haven't been able to treat with care. Yeah, I agree. My my journey is very similar in the sense of, you know, starting from a place of total corruption that you're in need of a savior, which is like, it's true, but it's not the full picture. Like that's the part that's really bad. You know, it's like, like that people would say about your family, like, well, they need a savior. Well, 
but they're good people. Like, you know, and I don't know. Well, what do we really, I mean, it is a big theological question that when we stack them up simply as cards, it, you know, you pull mm-hmm. out original sin from that and a lot tumbles really quickly. I don't envy anyone who's dealt with the tragedy of that collapse of the house of cards, but at the same time, you know, I, I do, oh, I'm going to quote scripture. I hate it when I do this. Like, <laughs> There's a scripture that always, I don't remember much of them. I've never been much of a a scripture memorizer, but you know, there's a, he has pardoned the genderization of this, but he's been forgiven much, loves much. Mm -hmm. What I, I love about that text is that reminds me of like, when you have those near death experiences, when you have the ability to see the contrast of having being without and with, mm-hmm. whatever that is, whatever the circumstances are, when you've gone through that experience, you can now say, oh, that last place, I don't necessarily need to judge it as bad. Mm-hmm. Having been without something doesn't necessarily mean that we're deficient or broken or anything necessarily bad, right? Mm-hmm. But with is much cooler <laughs> to have is much cooler sometimes in in those particular situations and i i think when it comes to salvation that's one of the interesting things that we've really struggled with for millennia right mm-hmm. how do we talk about what is essentially a liberation of our worldview like wow i'm free i don't have to be burdened by shame i don't have to be burdened by what other people think about me. I don't have to be burdened by my own behaviors if I don't have to, because I don't want to regret my behaviors, right? Whatever the cocktail of any of those things are. Like for me, liberation isn't just a magical switch that you get by believing that Jesus loves you or not. But to experience what love is becomes a liberative thing. And, you know, this is where I get kind of dicey with a lot of other Christians. I don't care where you get it. Mm-hmm. I don't care where you experience or find love in that, in its truest sense, whatever true is. But when it has that sense of purity, and I don't, I don't even like that word, but it's sincerely what it is. When, when you experience those things, it's amazing how much one you understand it and what you're willing to do. And I I think maybe the only kind of, maybe I'm not a parent, but I think sometimes like of that transition, like you mentioned, you're a parent mm-hmm. and oftentimes, you know, like my own peers go, I didn't know I could love my kid this much. Mm-hmm. All of the fear, all of the anxieties, all their own baggage and stuff that they had prior to that, all of a sudden that pales in comparison because you're now interested in taking care of, of this new person. And mm-hmm. it's those kinds of really subtle paradigm shifts, not that children are in any way subtle. <laughs> but I don't know, you you all of a sudden get a taste of that. And when so, you know, when when you've been forgiven much, you love much. When you realize, yeah, I really need to bear the consequences of that. And I didn't bear the consequence of that so destructively that I couldn't proceed forward and that people couldn't love me back or I couldn't participate in the world. Those are the kinds of concepts when I think take a long time, they take a lot of experience and they're not, you can't shortcut them. Mm -hmm. They're they're not going to be found by a prayer at an altar in 30 seconds. It's a lifetime of spiritual work. It's a lifetime of investing in that journey 
to do, be able to discover what that truly is and to be able to mess up along the way and go, no, I need to reconfigure the way that I'm approaching that. But mm-hmm. it's an extraordinary thing. And I don't know, I've made a, you know, I've certainly been able to make a life's work out of it to this point. So growing up before you become evangelical, when you're, you know, you're just hanging out and there's religion all around you, you're bathed in it, but you may not be, you know, may not be central to your life. What was sexuality? Like, was it good, bad, cursed? No, I didn't grow up with any sense of real trauma about it. I I can't claim any of that. I mean, I'm kind of, you know, I was a late bloomer. I mean, I didn't come out and kind of really, the light bulb didn't go off for me until I was in my late 20s, which is just Mm -hmm. really strange. But then I look back and I kind of go, oh, that makes so much more sense. Like, why didn't somebody tell me that in junior high? Like, you know, like, I remember when I came out, or actually my mom outed me to myself a little bit or whatever. It was weird. But, you know, when my mom finally was part of the conversation, she goes, well, I knew. And I was like, well, why didn't you tell me? Like junior right. high dances might've been way, but, you know, no wonder my, why my dating <laughs> life has been a complete and utter tragedy up until yeah. this point. Like, so, I mean, that's all to say is I didn't, it really wasn't on my radar as an option. And I, I've talked to kind of other people from kind of rural Midwestern communities, other LGBTQ plus people from similar kind of areas. And it wasn't like, I, I knew the gay people existed. I knew that like, it wasn't just, you know, boy, girl, heteronormative kind of stuff. But at the same time, I didn't really, you know, when you're, I did, when I was a kid, I didn't really understand it. It didn't occur to me that there was just the world I saw in front of me was the world I saw in front of me. Right. And so I, I understood that world. You know, I can look back and kind of go, oh, well, I've always been a tomboy. And I kind of always remember my grandmother being incredibly concerned that I didn't wear enough dresses and that I loved playing in the mud. And she would tell me to sit like a girl and she'd cram me into pantyhose. And not that any of those things make you gay, <laughs> but mm-hmm. like I already, I, un- I had an understanding probably very early on that I was pushing the norms of what was expected of me as a female presenting girl, right? Mm -hmm. At the same time, strangely enough, it didn't really bother me. (laughs) Like it didn't really, you know, my grandmother would tell me to cross my ladies and I'm going, no, (laughs) you know, I just, I didn't. And I I didn't have any problem like expressing my displeasure with your problems about what I am. And I I don't even think I really kind of understood that sexually until later. And then by by the time I became a Christian, sex was off the table in terms of piety. So I spent a whole decade not having sex. So about the time that I was starting to understand and be comfortable with myself, I just wasn't an option. It wasn't until later. So yeah, it was just a real strange thing. You know, it's not like I grew up thinking, oh my gosh, I'm gay and I need to tell people about it. I just, I was really sympathetic to some of the few queer people that I knew. I was pretty aware that I wasn't the most feminine girl. And you know, I would scratch my head quite a lot, particularly around the time that I got involved in church, where I was starting to kind of experience more pointed expectations of a young adult female to find a husband, get married and have babies. And those kinds of questions, I was just, I didn't have those kinds of questions for myself. And it was weird to have other people ask them of me. And I would kind of scratch my head going, uh, I don't really know how to answer the fact that you're asked, you're barking up the wrong tree. I just didn't mm-hmm. really kind of know how to contextualize that. And it wasn't until I met my wife, basically, that I was like, 
oh, right. <laughs> like this, this stuff really, well, like it was a weird episode where my, this is early days and she was getting ready to walk away from me forever. And mm-hmm. I was like, this, this cannot, this cannot happen. Like you're taking something with you. <laughs> you right. Like how, how can this be? And I didn't, I really, that, that was one of the moments in my life where I was like, Oh, <laughs> oh, I like you like that. Mm-hmm. And that's a pretty bizarre experience for somebody in their late 20s. Right. had secular success for lack of a better word as well back then so you know you're doing these ccm tours and then at the same time you're doing like lil affair did that influence your understanding of evangelical sexuality norms and all that like how how did that push your bounds or your understanding i don't think so i mean i was pretty comfortable it's not different in the way I feel now sometimes, but like mm-hmm. I, when i would say if you use lil affair as an example and i would go into like a music environment where I was definitely understood as a quote unquote Christian singer. And ugh, I was just mortified by that because I knew what those folks assumed that I would be when I walked into those spaces. And for me, I was walking into those spaces, not feeling obligated at all to present the way I would have to do on the other side. Whereas, you know, if I walked into an evangelical spot and had to be the Christian singer, there were expectations that I was going to be and and understand whatever the the cultural smiling representation mm-hmm. model of the good Christian woman was supposed to be. And I felt like in this other space, I could, I could actually be what I, whoever I was in that. And I did it. I would, they didn't have like the agenda to theologically pin me down. Like I could, right. whatever I would be in that space. But at the same time in those spaces, I was being judged for being maybe a little bit more conservative but surprisingly, not as much as you might think. Right. And I found in those spaces, I wasn't judged nearly as harshly as I was in my own faith environment about faith, <laughs> strangely mm-hmm. enough. So I don't know in terms of sexuality, whether or not that that really informed or liberated, you know, gave me any sense of liberation to any thought or idea or feeling. I think early on in my evangelical experience in like, you know, just in my hometown kind of where I was discipled and kind of had my most intense years, I'd seen college kids come out and then get walloped on immediately by their Christian friends. You know, like, we're here to save you. You know, you can't be gay. You you just haven't met the Lord yet. Or people that were inside of the church that were dealing with their sex. I saw those things. And I did not like what I saw. And I, I at, the, at this time, I, I can honestly tell you, I didn't see myself in those situations. I was watching this play out in front of me and I just, I found it intolerably cruel to mm-hmm. see any person, whatever it was, whether they were queer or seen tons of like alcohol was huge in college, you know, or in sex. So people would go have sex or go on a bender or something. And all of these kinds of weird things that would happen where, you know, my evangelical community would turn against or try and redeem these kinds of people and ultimately judge them as having failed in some way. And I just, I found that 
incredibly disheartening and I hated watching it. And in particular for my queer friends, I hated that. The artist uh, Semler, they've got a song called uh, Take Me Out to Coffee or Take You to Coffee, whatever mm-hmm. this thing where, you know, Christians take you to coffee and then they throw the hammer down of what they're really wanting, the you know, the reason why they wanted to tell you why you need to get right with the Lord. So, you know, I'd been taken to coffee a couple of times about relationships that I'd had with other female friends. And I just found myself like not really kind of entertaining that, but even on my own experience going, well, I'm you guys get mad at me if I'm too friendly with a guy because you think I'm sleeping with a guy. And mm-hmm. if I'm too close with a girlfriend because I don't have any guy friends in my life because you guys think I'm sleeping with them. So I'll have my girlfriends. And now you all think I'm sleeping with the girlfriends. Like, what is wrong with you people that you're so interested in my sex life? Yeah. So I just found that like a really interesting thing. And I think I didn't really explore like the theological argument, but as I read my own Bible and as I I didn't, like like I said, I can't make any claim to kind of at, in those early days trying to form a, a biblical or a theological position on LGBTQ issues. But I think from the larger point of view, kind of going back to our earlier conversation, my project was to understand something fundamentally beautiful mm-hmm. on its own about who we are as human beings. And that began to be something that that took shape very early on in my faith that mm-hmm. was not only a benefit to me of, as a person, but really altered the way I saw others around me and the way that we treated each other with or without religion. I didn't really care. I wanted to love my friends as my friends. I wanted to love the people around me. I wanted to find all the things that make us worthy of honor from others around us. That's yeah. what was important to me. And that was what it was of value to me. So what what you did, who you did, or how you mm-hmm. did it were kind of matters between you and your own agency in the world. But what my role to understanding you, to be a champion and, and somebody somebody with there and for you, not only to just love you on my own, but if at any point I was there to be a person to help your life be more fruitful, that's kind of what I endeavored to do. So I think in the long story of that, I got more comfortable with thinking in my own mind, at least privately, I don't agree with any pastor who vilifies a queer person from the pulpit. I just didn't. I, to me, that spoke of your character more than it spoke of God's character. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I think as on that and particular other theological issues, particularly as I got toward the end of my CCM career and I got more adult <laughs> and more, you know, feeling like I had more authority to actually speak of my own positions that as I went along in my, my CCM career, I found that there were, you know, two or three major things about where we were speaking and trying to get people to believe theologically. I was like, this is not, this is not our project. It is not our project to make rules for life. It's our you know, rules are helpful, but oh my God, here it comes, Paul, here it comes. Everything is permissible, but not everything is beneficial. Mm-hmm. I mean, what I see in that is the rules will only get you so far, but you really have to own something intrinsically. You have to own it in your soul for anything to be of benefit to you. Right. And that for me was just like, I may or may not agree even with these other things, but somehow or another, I've got to figure out a way to be loving and get out of the way of trying to tell other people or how, how they should orchestrate their lives, but be Mm -hmm. a partner with me. If you're someone external to me, be a partner with me for helping my life be fruitful 
not only for myself, but for my community. And likewise, that's my charge as well to help you be fruitful unto yourself and to your community. Do you, are you part of a religious community, a church or whatever, whatever that may be for you? You know, it's been probably 20 years since I've been part of like a regular, like brick and mortar faith community. But at the same time, I would go, oh my gosh, I'm in the whatever category. I mean, I have people of faith who are part of my daily life and my conversations. So I get weirded out because I, I don't, you know, I'm not a member of a church. I don't feel guilty about it at all. At the same time, I'm secularly embarrassed because I have a faith community. Right. You know, like I, there, there are people who know my language and I'm not interested in about accountability. I'm interested in people who are committed to kind of the same challenges that I'm willing to put myself forth. You know, and people who in my life that ask me hard questions and really ask me to think theologically about something if I'm yeah. making a theological argument and stuff like that. So it's it's weird, you know. I don't necessarily have the, you know, if I want to write or ritual, I know where to go to kind of get those. But it's weird. Like it's a rather modern, dispersed community that requires phone calls and telecommunications to, and um, a great deal of beer usually yeah. <laughs> to entice folks. But no, I've got it. And I, I think, but I think it's part of that social fabric too, that is different from the way that I grew up. It, it was a pretty effective bruise to push on for me for a long time. For me, like, well, you're not a member of a church. So how can you call yourself a Christian? I'm like, right. oh my God, how can you, like none of the people I ever went to church were as valuable to me as some of the people that I have in my life now. So yeah. how does that measure? Um, and then I, I think the other question is like, what Sunday church did Jesus go to every Sunday? I'm trying to remember, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. but it's, it's, we're transient in that. But I think, you know, I'm certainly happy to have a community of people that I trust. And strangely enough, I would have, my 20 year old self would have been really surprised to say that I grew up to be a human being who has people I feel like are invested in my growth as much as I'm invested in theirs. And it's really a weird experience, but it's, mm -hmm. it's glorious at the same time, if you're ever fortunate enough to kind of have that kind of community. What are you, what are you doing now? Where, where should people find you? Where should they go look for you? This is a dated reference for you all, but I am definitely feeling very much like Max Headroom. I, <laughs> with the, <laughs> With the COVID stuff going on and, and the the floor dropping out of a lot of the live uh, concert venues and such, uh, I've been living my life online. So patreon.com forward slash Jennifer Knapp. I'm doing online shows there once a month. I've got a couple of other projects in the works. Two places I would send you, jenniferknapp.com will get you all of the social media, all of the Facebook links and Patreon stuff. But if you're Patreon people, Patreon has been a godsend. It's been just one, it's a community. I hang out online every month. I just have a social hour. We just get together and hang out. Um, I'm doing online shows there. And obviously it's a way to keep in behind the scenes. And, um, you know, I'm definitely thinking about doing a couple of other projects like a podcast, uh, another, a th another thing called Jam with Jens, which basically is a fun thing that we did during COVID where um, other people send in their performances of my music, their guitar performances of it. And then I sing with it live for a show, which is really fun. So we're doing like all kinds of these virtual things, but jennifernap.com is the way to figure out what I'm doing. Why I Stay is a production of the Patheos Podcast Network, where we explore faith and gain understanding. If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave us a five-star review and tell a friend about us. 
My conversation with Jen was one of my favorite interviews I've ever done. Going into it, I wasn't even sure how she identified spiritually, but her devotion to Jesus and helping others flourish was apparent within minutes of talking. Jennifer has a Patreon where you can support her and get access to special live events, Q&As, and other exclusives. Visit jennifernapp.com for more details. Why I Stay is edited and mastered by Clinton Battles, and it was produced and hosted by me, John Osborne. If you're enjoying this series, consider checking out one of our other podcast offerings from Patheos, like From Sin to Saint. Some people might point to his anti-Nazi activism as the key thing for them. I mean, I'm, I'm compelled by that, but I think it's his theological and ethical underpinnings of his choices that really resonate for me. This willingness to die for his beliefs has inspired both religious commitment and religious violence. There were a couple of high-profile murders of abortion doctors and bombings of, of abortion providers in which the people who were convicted of the crimes identified Bonhoeffer as their inspiration. In this four-part historical exploration of the life and legacy of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, join creator and host Josh Lash as he sits down with experts and walks us through the intriguing and complex life of this revered German theologian and martyr. Or consider checking out the Bible Brief podcast. So let's talk about for a second just what is it, what's in there, how do we just untangle all of this and figure out is it something we should even pay attention to? I think that this is the most, perhaps the most misunderstood book of scripture. Would you agree? Pretty much hands down. In this special three-part series, host Lori Denning and guest Dr. McLean Heward sort through some of the popular misunderstandings about the New Testament book of Revelation and examine what this ancient apocalypse might mean for us today. You can find From Sin to Saint, the Bible Brief podcast, and our entire podcast catalog on patheos.com or on your favorite podcast app. Check the show notes for helpful links and more information. Thank you.